So welcome to Sweetland Word Squared, Writer to Writer, a collaboration with Literati, WCBN's Living Writers and Sweetland Center for Writing. Uh, welcome to our guest, Maria Cotera, and welcome to all here at Literati, um, and welcome to all listening with luck on WCBN's airwaves and streaming. My name is T. Hetzel, and I host Living Writers um, every Wednesday on WCBN, and I'm also on faculty at Sweetland Center for Writing. Before our conversation begins, I'd like to thank a few folks, um, John, Hillary, and Mike of Literati, um, Sweetland Center for Writing, and Scott, Shelley, Ray, and Aaron especially. Um, John at Ruse Roast. Ruse Roast has brought some coffee. If you've got some coffee in your hand, that's Ruse Roast. Um, Victoria Davis at University of Texas Press and WCBN FM, especially Carl woo, and, and Don, who's back at the station running the board and who gave us an hour of his showtime so we could do the special edition of Living Writers for Word Squared. And also Alex, who's here making all the sound possible up here working the magic. Um, without further ado, I'd like to introduce Zainab Khalil, a former student of Maria Cotera's, uh, to introduce our Word Squared guest today. Zainab. Um, Maria Cotera is an associate professor in the Department of Women's Studies and the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. She is a graduate of the Modern Thought and Literature program at Stanford University. As a master's student at the University of Texas, Professor Cotera worked with Dr. Jose Limon on a recovery project that uncovered a lost manuscript by Texas folk folklorist Jovita Gonzalez. Professor Cotera's book, Native Speakers, Ella Deloria, Zora Neale Hurston, Jovita Gonzalez, and the Poetics of Culture, received the Gloria Anzaladua Book Prize for 2009 from the National Women's Studies Association. Professor Cotera divides her time between teaching and public history. Her projects range from documenting the lives of women of color in the 20th century through scholarly work to developing new avenues for sharing the scholarship with the broader community. Her community-based projects include a museum of the Latina Latino experience in Southwest Detroit and an online archive of Chicana feminist activism in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, and I'll just say I work at Sweetland, but I also um, nominated Professor Cotera for this um, event or this project because I took a class with her last year. Um, it was a basic class. It was just um, introduction, introduction to women's studies. Um, and the class really changed my life, uh, not because of, you know, just the the text or the curriculum, but because of the way Professor Cotera really um, encouraged us to engage with the text in a way that went beyond the surface um, and really forced us to look closely and analyze what these um, women of color feminists, uh, that was the part that stuck out, stuck out to me the most, um, had to say. So I think I speak for a lot of people in the room, a lot of her students, and especially a lot of her women of color students when I say that she is an inspiring force on this campus um, and really has been a source of support for a lot of students on campus. So please join me in welcoming Professor Cotera. Thank you, Zainab. Thank you. And Maria, thanks for coming today. Thanks very much for being here. Um, so let's talk about you as a writer, Maria, a little bit. When when did it when did it all begin for you? When you were you a little girl who was writing, scribbling notes in a in an old fashioned notebook, or, or or stories, or what? Tell us a little bit about your writing beginnings. Right. Well, you know, 
when I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I, of course, I don't know what your I didn't know what your questions were going to be. But one of the things that kind of came to me was my first. I'd like to say, I'd like to talk about the first time I witnessed writing. Okay. Um, Great. And that was uh, my mother, uh, who was a Chicana feminist. Um, she used to take my brother and I to McDonald's because the McDonald's had just built a playscape, which is a, an indoor playscape, which is a new thing at that time in Texas, and it was air conditioned. Air conditioning. And uh, she would take us there and like tell us to go to the playscape and play, and she would write out in longhand um, a book that she ended up um, self-publishing uh, called uh, The Chicana Feminist. And um, I, that was my first... I, and I remember because I had already been familiar with the phrase from Virginia Woolf um, that what a woman writer needs mm -hmm. is a room of one's own. And I, I remember thinking at the time, and I must have been around 11, you know, that it was an interesting juxtaposition that my mother's room of her own was in a McDonald's playscape. <laughs> if only Virginia had known a know. room of one's own or a McDonald's of one's own. Right. <laughs> And I and I, I begin with that story because I think that um, for many women, and I would say, you know, for the women of color writers with whom I have been most engaged in my scholarship and my thinking, um, for many women, finding that room and the room metaphorically to write is really a challenge. And um, and yet they find creative ways to fit it in and around the contours of, of the expectations of their lives, and they do it. And my mother did it longhand, writing it out. She wrote two books, a book called Dios Ayembra in uh, 1976, and another one, which was a collection of essays and speeches that she had given while she was involved with the social movements that she was involved in, uh, called The Chicana Feminist. And so those were the, so I feel like it's kind of an amazing thing that my mother was a writer. Um, given the circumstances of our family and of her life, which was really full of lots of different things. So you had such an early model of what it is to, to care enough about writing where you're, mm -hmm. you're, fine, you're carving out the time or fitting it in, as yeah. you say, and whenever you can. Right. Uh, and I think it's no accident then that you also use the word witnessing to mm -hmm. start this, Maria, because mm -hmm. so much of your mm -hmm. current work now is working with oral histories mm -hmm. and recovering, mm -hmm. being a witness for mm -hmm. women of color writing. Right, and that's, I think that that's really where it gets started because, you know, the other thing is that my mother was, and sorry, I'm going to talk about my mother a lot. I'm thinking about her a lot lately. Not a lot, not too much. Um, <laughs> just enough. start crying. Um, but she, uh, you know, her life was really dedicated. And I think there was a, a period in the second wave, that's the second wave of the feminist movement, where women were not yet scholars. They were not recognized scholars. There were no women's studies departments. And at that time, what women did was they kind of bootstrapped it, just like our DIY culture right now, just like all our, you know, and I'd like to think about writing in a broader perspective, right, just like all of the people who are blogging right now, they were producing knowledge um, in the margins, right, of their lives, and um, she, her book was basically um, a book about the development of Chicana feminism as a praxis over the last 500 years. I mean, she began with the indigenous people of Mexico. So, um, 500 years. Yeah. So, that recovery process, that interest in recovery, that interest in giving voice to occluded or erased histories, that um, was very early. It was a kind of a passion of hers. And I was like her intern 
from my whole life living at home, like I, she had me doing research. And, you know, so she really incorporated me into that process. And, and mm -hmm. so I think, I mean, I actually think it's very unusual. And I don't know, you know, maybe in the Q&A, we can talk about this to have, you know, mothers who were so involved in producing knowledge, without any kind of remuneration or really any fame. She wasn't a scholar. She wasn't a professor. But so many women in the 1960s and 70s did it that way and self-published and did their own thing and produced knowledge at the margins of dominant knowledge. And so that's kind of my impulse as both a writer, how that, that shaped, you know, witnessing that work that was so, you know, someone who was so invested in doing work after hours, but also the way in which um, the process of recovering a hidden or lost history, a story that hadn't been told, voices that hadn't been featured, that that was the kind of generative thing for her. And then later when I you know, started doing my own work, that became really important to me. And so from the very beginning, even though my work has really shifted um, during over the course of my career, the one thing that remains the same is giving voice um, to, to voiceless subjects, particularly historical voiceless subjects. I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, ever presume to be able to give voice to the voiceless net who are living. I think they can voice their own yes. voice. How <laughs> like, many times did I say voice? But, you know, I, so really, I mean, it's because the dead cannot speak, right. except through our acts of memorialization. Um, I, I feel like that's, that's really what I'm passionate about. And so it seems like then there really was no moment when you were starting to work as a writer. It was sort of something that was just within you and this this process and watching your mother and and because mm -hmm. I was I was wondering if the working at the Chicana Research and Learning Center had been critical in your development as a writer. That was or? my mother's foundation. Oh, it was? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit of nepotism there. Um, right. So, you know, in the 70s, uh, there was a lot of money available through WIA grants and things like that to create these kind of, there were no, again, let's remember, there were no women's studies departments, right? Mm -hmm. Or very, very few. They were really early. And so a lot of women of color, especially, that's the history I know, um, like my mother, um, got grants from the government to create these sort of clearinghouses for the production of knowledge on women of color, totally on the margins and totally on the outside of the academic mainstream. And so I did a lot of work there um, producing everything from resource books for, like there was assertiveness, assertiveness training was really popular in feminist circles in the 80s. <sighs> My mother uh, wrote an assertiveness training manual for uh, Mexican-American women called Doña Dormant No Está Aquí. Doña Dormant's wow. not home. That is a great title. <laughs> I know. Oh, She's wow. awesome. <laughs> and so I helped her produce that. And so I was really involved in a kind of um, bootstrap enterprise that was very, not fly-by-night, but, you know, mm funded by disappearing grants constantly. And in, then in the backlash of the 80s and 90s, a lot of those grants went away and she had to get a real job. But, um, but you know, so I would say that one of the things that really, when I was a master's student, um, as Zainab mentioned, I was involved in this research project in which um, I was really 
you know, uh, privilege to um, do basically it was an archival research project. And archives are essentially documents documenting people's lives. It could be anything from manuscripts to photographs, et cetera. And there was this one woman, this folklorist from the 30s who had been long dead, who, who my mother had interviewed many years before. Um, mm. And we uh, were fortunate enough to discover this hidden manu, this lost manuscript in her office. In her, so where was this? Because when you said discover this hidden manuscript, it sounds like there's a film here too, Maria. I know. So. I'm the Chicana Raiders of the Lost Ark. What's his name? Harrison Ford. Yes. What's his name? His Indiana act- Jones. Thank right. You. <laughs> Mexicana Jones. Perfect. <laughs> Sorry, that's horrible. <laughs> but, but I mean, it seems so mysterious, too, like it is. finding this and because you're recovering was. it, but just finding it. Yeah, so I mean, essentially, the story is this woman was a relatively well known folklorist in the 30s. She had been forgotten by time and just she had published a few things, but she was um, the student of a very famous Texas folklorist. And so we had their correspondence and we were interested in learning more about her. And we discovered in their correspondence that she had written a novel and she'd sent him like three chapters and I was like wouldn't it be cool if we could find this so we started tracking it down and um her uh she had no children so and and she was survived by her housekeeper so her housekeeper inherited the house and around that time uh some librarians were inquiring and they said she said come look at the library and in a box sort of tucked away hidden uh with correspondence between her and a co-author who was an anglo woman actually Mm -hmm. interestingly um, there was this manuscript that had been written in the 1930s and put away. And you were a grad student, Maria. I was a master's time. student. A master's so student. So kind of amazing. And so we got this thing. Uh, it was like on um, half of it was on, uh, what's that reverse transfer? Uh, oh, God. Oh, uh, like the blue copy. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what this is anymore. It's but too old technology there was a time when people when they wanted to make a copy carbon copy carbon copy so half of it was on carbon copy the other half was on the back of uh, some gun shop correspondence Mm. and i was the first person to read this novel written by this woman who had been forgotten by history and this beautiful novel written by her and an anglo woman and she was mexican-american and serendipity yeah it was kind of amazing so you know, again, there was this sort of recursive moment for me because I, in the moment when I found this beautiful thing, that um, this 500-page manuscript that was really incredible, and we published it, mm. um, I just, it sort of took me back to my mother's, you know, writing in the margins as well. Mm. And so for me, you know, realizing that there's this long history of lost text. Well, in Jovita, because it's Jovita Gonzalez, mm-hmm. yes? She mm-hmm. didn't have an advocate, as you said. Like she right. didn't have someone to find her voice mm-hmm. until you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was pretty good, a good advocate for herself. She 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 was very professionally successful in the field of folklore studies, but mm. she married, and then that was kind of the end of her career. So there's also gendered dimensions to this. She was expected not to have a separate career mm. um, as a writer and a folklorist, um, and so she kind of the novel marks the end of her professional life as a folklorist and so it's it's the last big piece she wrote um and she had a long life after that as a teacher as an undergrad maria did you have a sense that this would be your vocation this would be some like that you would be on this path no i'm really embarrassed to say that as an undergrad i was a horrible undergrad i'm i was the person that i always complain about so 
I was, you know, um, I was not, I mean, for what really for me, what was happening is I was working for very little money in my mother's uh, Chicana Research and Learning Center doing research. And I realized that I could go and get a master's and for the same kind of stipend, uh, earn a degree and do the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it was actually working with my mother on doing this kind of bootstrap research, these research projects and these community projects that um, I first became interested in research in particular. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I read the novel and started thinking about it and writing about it, uh, Javita Gonzalez's novel. Is it that, Caballero? Yeah, Caballero, that I became really interested in writing. And so that, yeah. for me, it was research came first, and yeah. then I started uh, reading a lot. Well, I've always read a lot, but, but yeah, writing became something that was really interesting to me as a master's student. So that was sort of a, like finding some, a passion yeah. that sort of fired you. Yeah, and I guess for me, like, writing is, like, the avenue for the... I hate to say this because I know we're talking about writing, but for me, writing is a communicative, you know, art, right? Yes. And it's it's an avenue for communicating or telling these stories that I that haven't been told. So for me, unlike, I think, for a fiction writer, perhaps, or maybe like a fiction writer, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's the the impulse to, to tell stories that you know that that really kind of generates for me stories that and stories about people who who have been kind of ignored and uh yeah because i think they're really important but that's just my own thing right. well no i mean it makes perfect sense to me i don't know it makes sense to you guys too out there yeah mm -hmm. and it seems like in native speakers you were looking at um these three women, Ella Deloria, Zora Neale Hurston, Jovita Gonzalez, as you mentioned, and how they took their ethnographic work or mm -hmm. their science work, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. termed it, mm -hmm. and meaning making in mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. avenue and mm -hmm. created, well, moved to storytelling, to fictionalize Yeah, I mean, it. it's... it's Be an, because it, there's something authentic about telling mm -hmm. a story that way, isn't it? To, mm -hmm. to capture mm -hmm. the truth mm -hmm. or... I think to. what's interesting about these three women as writers, and I'll just say something briefly about them. Probably some of you are familiar with Zora Neale Hurston, right? She's kind of canonical and probably not so much with the other two. Um, all three, Ella Deloria was a, native, a Dakota Sioux um, anthropologist, the great aunt of Phil Deloria, who's our associate oh. dean of undergraduate studies. Interesting. Yeah. Shout out to Phil. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he's tuned in. Professor Deloria. Um, uh so uh, she, all three of them worked with really important and well-known scientists, including Franz Boas in the mm -hmm. case of Zora Neale Hurston and Ella Deloria and this man named J. Frank Dobie in the case of Jovita Gonzalez. And all three of them wrote ethnographic texts, which are considered more scholarly monographs, you know, kind of more hewed to realist conventions, mm -hmm. right? If you're an ethnographer, you're supposed to tell the truth about what you experienced. It's part and, of the deal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and but all three of them at some point in their careers turned to creative writing and wrote and, and in particular when they wrote their novels about women. Mm -hmm. And so I became very interested in this question precisely of different registers of writer of our writerly lives and what stories can be told in fiction that can't be told in, you know, when you're kind of hewing to more conventional scholarly norms and uh, what identities and ideas and thoughts can emerge when you're a creative writer or you're taking this different kind of authorial position um, than when you're 
doing this other kind of work where you have to be objective or you have to kind of erase yourself as author in many ways in scholarly writing. So this whole question of the the line between science and fiction and and why we choose to cross that line when we do is really important to the book. And, you know, that's kind of the central thematic. And how, Maria, how are you finding that your work now, because Native Speakers came out in 2008, mm-hmm. and, and, and with the projects that you're working on now with El Museo del Norte mm-hmm. and also... Uh, Chicana Chicana por mi raza. Por mi raza, yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how are how are these um how is your writing changing now or how is it different? Well I think first of all I'm not doing it. Um because <laughs> I'm too busy. Actually I was really uh kind of freaked out about coming and talking to you about writing and I because I had this really kind of in my head I realized I was harboring this very old school notion of writing. And I say old school in the realist sense, which is you sit down in the morning, mm. you write for five hours, you create an argument, you you know, this is a scholarly monograph model. Like you do it every day if you can, if you can get leave. And um and I was like, you know, what am I gonna what am I gonna say about writing? And then I realized that these days I'm that's all I do. I write mm. all the time, but I'm writing proposals, I'm writing exhibition texts for museums, you know, I'm writing. So you're shifting your register with audience and absolutely. So it's all changed. And then I was thinking, well, that I, you know, I was kind of harboring this binary between the prosaic writing that we do every day to move forward our ideas. And then this kind of ivory tower I have to go to my study and and put on my like my jacket my tweed jacket with the patches and (laughs) get my pipe out (laughs) hopefully put tobacco in it um and (laughs) we these images work well in a bookshop over the airwaves let me think about that we all have don't pretend you don't have your your jacket with your patches we'll go back to that But but that, you know, that understanding of writing does not actually reflect the kind of writing that we do all the time. And I'm not just talking about emails and that kind of stuff, but really substantive writing where mm-hmm. you're, you know, because for me, writing really involves a kind of trans- translational process, right? So and if you're a scholar, it usually means I collected all this data and now I'm going to come up with an argument about it and share it with you in this particular format, 280 pages. And, you know, and so for me, um, you know, I had to kind of rethink before coming here, like what I'm valuing and privileging in terms of writing and what I'm missing in terms of the actual creative writing that we do on a daily basis. And the only other thing I'll say about that is, you know, I loved writing this book and I actually love the process of writing. I you know, I'm the kind of person that will wear the same, like, uh, sweatpants for a week. I, I hate to admit this. Well, if it's working well, right. if the pants and are it's working. Really do- it's working well for writing. It may not be working well for other things in my life. But, you know, I just get in. I'm like a real, you know, when I get into writing, I really move into a different state. Um, and the kind of writing I'm doing now is not that kind of writing. It's the kind of writing that, that happens a lot like what my mom did mm-hmm. in the margins and tucked along the sides and very much uh, inspired by a passion to communicate and to get this important 
material and the knowledges that I'm collecting out into the public, even if it's just in a little piece. And I was I was thinking about this and about my student writing, actually, which I think is getting better and better. I just have to say that. You guys are getting... You're a good writer. How so? How so? What are you noticing? Well, I started thinking about this. Um, and, and so, okay, so, sorry, I'm, I know I'm wandering. But back to what I, the way I write now is when I can, right? And usually to condense what I have learned in my data and the things that I'm collecting for either a grant proposal or for a proposal for a conference or to deliver mm -hmm. a paper somewhere or for a workshop or for a class, right? And I started thinking about how my students are writing and why they are becoming better and better writers. And, you know, you guys, you do this kind of writing all the time when you write for blogs, right, and read mm -hmm. blogs um, in particular, right? So I think that there is actually kind of if we recalibrate, like what would happen if instead of writing a 280-page book, I wrote, you know, 150 blog posts about the same thing. I'm all for it. <laughs> so, I mean, I think we, so even how it's changing how we might conceptualize, you know, the creative process, mm -hmm. right? Because the creative process may actually, it may not be that odd for you or to within sit with your... academia. Oh, yeah. Well, that, you know, is a whole other yeah. animal. Yeah. But, yes. I mean, so the creative process might look more like what I saw my mother doing, mm -hmm. except with a laptop, you know? I mean, so I, I started thinking about that, like all the writing I'm doing, what if I put it all together and think about like that as an opus instead of that? And and I do think that the Academy is uh, both benefiting from this important trans, the, what, what we call the post paper or the post, you know, mm. the post print world. We're benefiting from this in all kinds of ways, not least of which is in our students writing, because mm. many of them are writing from very early ages are keep writing blogs and you know extended pieces of writing that because they're digital aren't really being considered in the same kind of domain as this right so i think it's a challenge and exciting actually definitely with uh, considerations of voice i think people then are finding a voice Absolutely. they don't feel like they have to step into some false register to write an essay or a paper right they may not get tenure but <laughs> that's a whole and other that is, that is another yeah that's another show yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we, we won't talk about a this. different show we'll just keep it to happy talk do, do you <laughs> well we, we have some serious questions too yeah. do you mind if i ask you a question from yeah. a student that is sent in um junior sarah spittery business administration major uh my minor in writing um asks what are some of the qualities um, Maria, that you have observed in more successful student work? Well, it really depends on the format. So more and more, I'm, I'm moving away my assignments um, from papers. And that's not just because I'm lazy. But <laughs> no, <laughs> not just. <Clearly. laughs> um, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, just recently I taught a class in oral history and all of the student writing happened online on, on a blog. And was that Los Repatriados? No, that no. Okay. this was a uh, this was a class related to the Chicana por mi Raza digital archive project, where I had students collect oral histories from local women and collect their archives, collect and digitize their archives, and then put up some archives in our blog, 
and then write about them. And this Chicana por mi raza class blog is interesting because it's related to my class, but it's also connected to classes, other classes that are being taught on this model across the nation. So what we're really trying to do is kind of create a community of writers around you know, this kind of collective and collaborative process. And so the students mainly wrote reflection papers. And what I thought was interesting is if I had asked them to write a five to 10 page paper on some archive, like give them an archival image and, and write about it, um, I think I would have gotten different kinds of writing than asking them to write a blog entry or a blog post on to choose an image that they had just uh, archived and collected or a moment from an interview and to reflect on that connected to texts that we had read. So there's real content-based knowledge mm -hmm. being produced, not just reflective knowledge. Um, I feel like it would have been more of a chore for them to write that five to ten pages. But believe me, some of those blog entries were really long. I mean, and it's interesting to me how the different... It's perceived, yeah. how each of the tasks would be perceived, perhaps, right. and how you felt released into it. And also it changes this, I mean, I'm all for the essay style, the, the traditional essay style. If you need that architecture to make sense of your ideas, you know, you have your thesis sentence, you have your, you know... Uh, opening paragraph or two, the Supporting intro, evidence. We supporting. can all go down the line. We know what that is, right? <laughs> um, and what's interesting is, you know, the the blog format didn't necessarily disenable that or prevent that. Mm. So some students did choose to kind of apply that more traditional formula in the blog, but some didn't. And I think it really freed up their writing for a different kind of essayistic style, a tradition that is much more, much older than that expository essay tradition that is much more like the kind of writing that, oh, I don't know, um, oh, uh, Animal Farm. George Orwell. George Orwell, right, that, that kind of essayistic writing, right? So there is a long tradition of the essay that isn't in that rigid format that, that is, is also really welcoming and reflective and, and incorporating one, the individual into it. So I like that. I think the students, they should be in those. With your professor hat on, <laughs> saying that. Now, um, also, my reviewer hat, and I, you know, because oh. I also have the opportunity to read a lot of man book manuscripts from presses. Um, mm. I review for presses, and, uh, and that means before they publish a book, you know, they send it out to people to say, okay, this is good to go. And there is a lot of academic writing that is very difficult to get through. It's very, very boring. And it shouldn't be. It should not be boring. Well, no, not if the point's <laughs> to communicate ideas right. and have people enlivened by them. Right. You and don't want to have people hitting a wall, like, to keep them out of the ideas. Right. And, and I think, you know, honestly, it's that because it's a communication, a form of communication, then you yeah. can't, like, invisibilizing the author and his or her positionality. I mean, I'm not talking mm. about, like, total navel-gazing and just focusing on yourself, which is also super irritating. But um, invisibilizing the person communicating from whom the communication emerges mm -hmm. is really, it kind of breaks it, right? So it's really hard to care. And I really, you know, with I also read a lot of dissertations. And when I hear the phrase, this dissertation will argue, it drives me absolutely crazy. Because you want someone to say, I will argue. Yeah. Or I argue. Your dissertation is inanimate. <laughs> 
It cannot argue. It's a piece of paper with writing on it. Unless it's like Schoolhouse Rock with <laughs> I'm right. just a bill and I'm it's just, just animated. Right. And, this bill yeah. will argue. <laughs> we'll make an existential argument about its own existence. Right. Right. It's magic. It's That's magic. what happens. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so then I, I just, you know. Uh, so what would you say? Like step, like step into your voice, empower your, yeah. like uh, grab your ideas, feel mm -hmm. in your writing. There, so I don't think anybody spends, you know, many, many months and years, um, even in academic writing. So we're talking about scholarly writing, right? I don't think anyone spends all that time researching and writing if they're not totally crazy about an idea. And if that's not coming through, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, right? So I think a lot of people are reluctant in academic writing to be too present in it because they believe that if they're not present, they seem more objective. Authoritative. Yeah, and authoritative and distanced, and I can be rational about this, I'm not too close to it. But, but you're here ridiculous. to say no. No. Why would you write a 400-page book about something you're not totally passionate about? That seems crazy to me. So I, you know, so I think, and, and it's, it's just not reflect. So there's a, a, for me, and it comes back to the native speakers, right? There's an active erasure, right, going on in a lot of academic writing, a lot of scholarly writing of the beating, beating heart at the center of it, right? Mm. Which is um, a form of um, lying. <laughs> I mean, I'll say it's I'll in say, an yes. attempt Right to be mm -hmm. to seem more or obscuring. more right or, or obscuring right so it's in an attempt to seem more like believable right right and and trustable and trustworthy uh, we spend a lot of time you know sort of excising uh, the subjectivity from our work and uh, I don't think it I don't think it works for readers and I yeah mainly I don't think it works for readers. I have a pointed question from Junior mm -hmm. Ali Malone, psychology major, writing minor. Um, and I'm wondering, and we've been talking around it, Maria, a bit. What would be the number one piece of advice you would give to students about how to write a successful paper? Um, would it be find some sort of passion that to, yeah, to, to tailor sure. your... Or right. I mean, it's the one thing that I've seen has led to successful long-form writing amongst graduate students and, and even under for undergrads yeah, too. Yeah. For you have to be really excited about something i think i mean if you're given some assignment where you know, you're given three choices, and I, you know, I understand that's the reality of. But one other thing that you might, that one might think about is, you know, to you, you have to start early, obviously, that's you know, true. and um, to begin with a format that you feel safe with, an architecture, right, a structure, and if it's that old school expository essay structure, mm. then begin there, but give yourself enough time to nuance it in the drafting phases. So then, you know, begin with something that you're familiar with, I guess, something to hang your arguments on. And then after that, begin to rethink how you're making the argument. And anytime something doesn't fit or seems like it's not working with your argument, that's where the gold is. No. Oh, that's where the gold is. Yeah. So then you 
yeah. you find you dig in there. Why isn't it you working? Dig in. That's where the originality is. I mean, in, in terms of the idea, right? So it's like I'm going to apply Freudian analysis to this novel. Let's mm. say, I hope none of you uh, have to do that ever. Um, but but in the luck. moment, right, when you're like, oh, I'm going to jam this evidence into this argument. Um, and oh. when it's not fitting, then that's telling you something that probably hasn't been thought of before. Right? Ooh, and that so, would be exciting. That would so, be right. And there's. And a perfect example is in this book, you know, this was a, I wrote about this novel that I discovered and it was collaboratively written on the border of the U.S.-Mexico border in a time when Anglos and Mexicans were not getting along. And it was written by this Mexican-American woman and this Anglo woman. And so I, when the first time I wrote about this novel in my dissertation, I conveniently kind of ignored the co-authorship of the novel because it created more problems for me and maybe some tension or some interesting dynamics right so if you're going to make an argument about the sort of what she's saying about mexican americans on the border in the 1930s if that's what you're hinging your argument on and it just so happens that the novel isn't just written by she who was mexican american but by another woman right. then you have a bit of a problem and a problem that a lot of critics have ignored because it's complicating right right because it's not one voice um, that can speak for Mexican Americans on the border in 1938, but two voices mm -hmm. that might have two very different opinions about that. Right. right. And so for my book, instead of avoiding that, which I had in my dissertation because I had to get it written, and it was too hard to sort of think about that, I thought, okay, what if I take that thing that's a problem and make it the center of my analysis? And that completely changed my reading of the book. I mean, it was transformational. It was so powerful. And I realized it didn't undermine, right, I was afraid that it would undermine my argument that this was a Chicano feminist text. But it didn't, actually. What it did was Authentic. made it stronger. Um, and, and I wasn't doing that by exiling this woman who was haunting my reading and my writing horribly, you know. But one of the reasons why people, and this is again these voices that are lost, one of the reasons why scholars hadn't written about her and don't want to write about this novel as a collaborative novel is that nobody knows who the co-author is. And very little evidence of her existence had, you know, been uncovered um, before I wrote this book. Interestingly, after this book came to my doorstep, her great-nephew, her grand-nephew, I guess, sent me an email randomly saying that uh, he had seen Caballero, the book, out in print, and that that was his great aunt, um, Aunt Margaret. And I got to go interview him and, and talk to him about her and found out all kinds of interesting stuff about her. So all I'm saying is sometimes things don't fit. Don't um, try to exercise those things, but actually go in and see why they're not fitting, because they may open up new ways of thinking about things for you. And when things are hard, that's in a way how it should be because that means thinking is hard having new thoughts yes that's hard <laughs> right thinking if it's is not hard. something that someone's already told you or you've learned or you've heard right it's something new and but it's, it's really generative too. and it can get there's a moment in your writing that can get especially in long form writing and this is like writing for, on working on a piece for many many months right that there can be moments of revelation that really mm. honestly feel like, especially if you're writing about historical subjects like these, uh, this is what nobody wants to really talk about. 
lean in. Where they come in, they, they, they reveal things to you. You feel uh, slightly possessed if you spend enough time mm. in someone's archive. You feel possessed by that archive. You feel, and, and then the urge to tell their stories gets really strong. And to tell them right, and to not ignore important things like co-authors. Because <laughs> they will haunt you. Yeah, I, <laughs> that really struck me, that you said that, Maria, and I believe you. Is this part of, so in this work that you're doing, and with the oral histories, mm -hmm. now can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that related to writing, too, because I was like, oh, why am I going to go talk about writing when I'm just recording oral histories? You know, what does that have to do with writing? And I realized, you know, I mean, ultimately for me, you know, my work has really been about storytelling. Mm. And um, I do it in a kind of register that is recognized as scholarly normally, but less and less so, I have to say. It seems like um, part of you resists that. Because maybe because yeah, of how so you grew boring. up as well. Yeah. The activism. I can the say scholarship <laughs> is boring. <laughs> the boring. It's not. It can be really beautiful. Sponsored by Sweetland Center for Writing. <laughs> no, scholarship is, is they exciting. They know it. Thrilling. They have to read those yes. articles. <laughs> they know what I'm talking about. And we want better writing. But you know there. what? You do, you know, all you people have to read those articles. You know the difference between a really beautifully written article and a really boring one. Right? I mean, and it's not just all about loosey-goosey reflective writing. Like, there's some really critical writing, beautiful, beautiful theory, you know, that is really nicely written, right? And, but to me, like, what, what differentiates that kind of writing, even when you're talking about critical theory, even when you're talking about science, even when you're talking about things that you don't normally associate with storytelling, mm -hmm. what is being told, there is a story being told. And the reason why it, it's appealing to you and the reason why it makes sense and the reason why it's not confusing you and the reason why you at least understand parts of it is because that story is, is really is being told in a, in a way that is convincing, mm. right? And so I often tell my graduate students who like sometimes, not always, mostly not, but sometimes, you know, they'll get, they'll sort of get infected by the critical theory that they've heard and they've read and they respect and you know they'll produce writing that is not essentially telling a story right that is essentially just kind of flatlining right it's just in one place or it's it's echoing the words of someone else mm -hmm. um and i always ask them well, what story are you telling here right because i think we think fiction writers have to tell mm -hmm. stories and scholarly writer writing convinces i don't know what scholarly what 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 scholarly writing is supposed to do. share our um share the data that we've collected share the research that we've done communicated in some way right right but storytelling is so it's part of who we are as human beings yeah and so it seems natural if you want to share ideas mm -hmm. um that would be a way scientific ideas whatever it is mm -hmm. you would try to, to tell the story of it would be right. the way to you could deliver it you know, and historians, I don't know if you guys have read much history books, but they have figured out a, a cool way to do this. I, I, like, since I'm interdisciplinary as a scholar, I get to read all kinds of books. And I really like, and some people say this is overplayed, but I like beginning with a story, a kind of elucidating mm. or illuminating story about the kinds of concepts you're going to lay out or the arguments you're going to make. You know, so, um, and that's how I begin my book. I begin mm -hmm. with a story. Um, and so I think that pulls a reader in, 
Right. And even if it's like a kind of a made up story. So if you're trying to explain, for example, something pretty conceptual or difficult, like how algorithms in computer code create identity or interact with identity. You know, I just recently read a piece by a, a colleague that writes about this. And, you know, he says, imagine yourself sitting down at a computer. You're typing in and here you're web surfing, mm -hmm. you're going here and there and, you know, and here's what's happening behind right, in the algorithm while you're doing all of this. So that's a, it's a story. It's not a true story. Well, the reader is then in the, is a character. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want to know more about this. So, I mean, that's kind of a trick, but <laughs> I think it works. I'm very convinced by it. It always, it always fools me. I'm like, okay, I'm willing to go with Ma this. Maria, I have another student question for you from Miriam Ackerval, um, in, in Program in the Environment major and minor in writing. Uh, what authors or books or works have influenced you and, and your work the most? What about them compelled you? Right. I mean, I think I've been really, um, I've been really shaped by uh, by the writing of women of color, really profoundly shaped in my scholarship, um, in the ways in which they incorporate um, personal reflection and experience, theory, um, and prose in really interesting ways, prose, poetry, et cetera. Gloria Anseldua's uh, Borderlands, super influential. This bridge called my back, really important a collection of writing by women of color. Um, books like, you know, uh, my mentor, uh, Jose Limon, um, who I worked with on the manuscript, he wrote a beautiful book of folklore history called Dancing with the Devil, mm -hmm. that again is this kind of, some people call it like a mixed genre, you know, he calls it a long form essay. So it includes scholarship, Right, it's there's real scholarship there. I mean, we're not just making this shit up, right? Right. Sorry. Oops. The S. Was that bad on the radio? FCC. I'm really sorry. So sorry. I didn't, I didn't tell you before we. we it's a good started. thing this isn't a video recording. You wouldn't believe what's going or on behind naturally this mic. becoming a oh, no, no. the studio audience. They're in on it. I'm sorry. So, uh, uh, um. Uh, he wrote, you know, so it, his writing, and I think the writing I like most, mm -hmm. really is um, writing that's attentive to narrative thread. Mm. And, um, you know, and I read mainly scholarly writing. Uh, so I don't read novels that much anymore. You know, I'm just really busy. So The bookstore is sort of shaking. Right <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I see scholarship yes. all through here. Yes. I just, you know, so I really, I mean, I love even, you know, dense theoretical work, if it's written beautifully, mm. I, I love it. I love reading good writing. It makes me so happy. And is there a person that's standing out, like who you just read? Like who's on your nightstand? Oh, that's you know, an Inside the Actors so, Studio uh, a question. This there. is kind of embarrassing. I just read, because I've been here so long, I just read, uh, I think his name is Thomas Sugru, uh, The Origins of the Urban Crisis. Oh my gosh, that book. Okay, it gets a little boring in the middle, I will admit. <laughs> Anyone who's read it knows. It's a meaty it's, book. It's meaty, it's long. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, you know, I think every U of M student should read this book. Mm upon arrival. I think it's a really profound. What I love about this book is the way in which he is able to make an historical argument about the, you know, so it's about the riots, the prehistory of the riots, the Detroit, Detroit. riots. Um, and what I love about it is that you don't realize it's the prehistory of the Detroit riots until you get to the end of the book. And then 
you realize that the Detroit riots is sort of a postscript. And what he's really telling is a history of violence mm -hmm. against black communities mm -hmm. um, in in uh, southeastern Michigan um, that, you know, we spend so much time thinking about the right, this one flare up of, of violence that was very kind of a lot of media attention paid to it when, in fact, there was 80 years or 100 years of, viol of structural violence before that. I love that book. I love Andy Smith's Conquest. Um, it's an incredible book. Um, Andy Smith. Yeah. And, oh, what I wanted to say is what I read a lot of now, um, and it's really exciting, is blogs. And I think some of the best women of color writing and feminist writing is happening online. And what I love so much about it is that its immediacy, its ability to, you know, sort of issue a kind of rapid fire cultural critique, the whole Beyonce blow up, right, in the feminist blogosphere. So blogs like um, Crunk Feminist Collective, Real Color Girls, Native Voices, um, and of course, you know, uh, um, uh, feministing and uh, some of the other sort of feminist blogs. I'm thinking, what is the other one? Jezebel, Jezebel thank you. Oh, that's a great um, name. And uh, Andy Smith's blog, again, just some of the best critical writing. What I love about it is, is its immediacy, mm -hmm. its you know ability to kind of very quickly diagnose a cultural situation. Because if I were going to write about Beyonce, about this last kerfuffle within the black feminist uh, blogosphere around Beyonce, you know, that book would be out in five years. Right. Right. And I, that's why I think it's like when we think about writing, we really have to change the way we're thinking about writing. And it may be, especially as academics, because the academic publishing industry is very challenged right yeah. now. So we need to start thinking about how, and, and also because, you know, feminism has really kind of been, uh, in a dormant phase, and I would say in the last five years, um, some of the best feminist criticism is happening online. And mm -hmm. it's really awesome to see people react immediately. Like, you know, also like the hashtag not buying it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, so the, I think that's writing. I think tweets are writing. Yes. You know, yeah. And it's smart and it's alive. It's, and it's smart, it's yeah, vital. and informed, critically informed, theoretically informed. It's not just like reflective navel gazing. It's serious. Tara, I have another student yeah. question. And how are we doing for time, Liz? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, this question is from Junior Abigail Wilkins, an English major, writing minor. Um, how do you feel about teaching your own work in the classroom? Huh. And and this is a two-parter. And um, in general, do you think professors should teach from their own pieces or require students to buy their books? <laughs> Abigail! <laughs> I, I, I think this is, me this, on the spot. this is a question people want to know. Me too. <laughs> what I will say about that is that I am not a, a I'm not a self promoter, so I the I would be horrified to teach my book in my class. Even though I think it's a good book, it is a good book, and I'm, I'm here think, to tell you. I mean, even though I think you know it, it has some really interesting things to say that my students could benefit from. Um, mm, no, I mean I will go to a class and talk about it. If someone mm -hmm. else wants to teach it, mm -hmm. um, because. If you're going to make them write a reflection piece, like what? No, you can't. It's, I mean, and that's like, I'm not a scientist. So I think the conventions are really different in the sciences and in the hard oh, sciences. 
you know, because basically if you're at U of M, your professors are probably going to be writing the stellar textbooks. And what else are they going to teach with? Right. So I think they're kind of in a place where they kind of have to. But um, That's true. I, although I did, you know, this last oral history class, I made the, the students do the work for my for my research project. So I don't have a problem with like incorporating them. Interning. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But no, I think that's actually collaborative and generous right? because you're, you're showing people a path to engagement Mm -hmm. with ideas. And I'm not just rationalizing. No, no. I really think that's genuine. I I mean, what we did was we did oral histories. We collected archives. We read archives. We did amazing work. And it was feeding into a project, this digital archive that I'm working on. So all their work went, contributed to our digital, our national digital archive project, which is huge. But it also, what I loved about that process, and it was the first time I taught it was last semester, and I'm teaching it again next semester, is that we also read history books about Chicana feminism Mm. and the students were able to create for themselves after doing the kind of work that goes into writing a history book because what they did was essentially what I would do if I were writing a history book about Latinas in Michigan right you interview people you collect archives and you analyze them you know and then you come up with your argument and you write your book and so they were able to read history books about the topic and then see the primary materials and how you actually build history. And I think it changed. I will say it changed their, I hope, if there's anyone in the room who was in that class, uh, I think it changed their understanding of history because most students really hate reading history. Is that right? That's the impression I get. Right? It, and so I think my students had a whole different understanding of history. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have turned one or two of them. That's one. Let's um, could could um, Liz, could you hand me the loose mic over there? And um, uh, we have time uh, for for a question, because um, I've been reading student questions, but we have a live student here. Um, <laughs> we have a live student who will who will now ask a question. So my name is Bethany Canning. I am a biopsychology cognition and neuroscience major and a minor in writing. Um, you've said that part of your drive to write comes from the impulse to tell stories, and that's kind of where your passion comes from. What advice do you have for writers um, like myself who are just beginning to view ourselves as writers, kind of early on stage? I think you need to write a lot. I mean, that's why like, I was so celebratory about blogs, because mm-hmm. I think blogs really force you to write for a large audience to imagine like to and they they force you to to write for a different kind of audience an audience not of specialists um you know because if you're writing within a field you can get really locked into the bad habits the bad writing habits of that field and i think when you're engaging that kind of translational process of translating your specific research interest into a different format and for a general public it can really loosen up your writing in interesting ways and uh so yeah i would i would blog i would do that i mean i sound like such a goofy old person that's all into i've seen the light <laughs> <laughs> that blogging is that's so that nice blogging you do, that's awesome. <laughs> um, but uh uh uh, you know, there's a really great um, blog that a colleague of ours here at Michigan does called Feminist Gap Feminist Gap Junction. It's called Gap Junction, okay. and it's a science blog. It's a feminist science blog. It's beautiful. Short-form writing, 
really mm-hmm. cool, very awkward and up to the moment. So find that thing that you like writing about and blog. Okay, yeah, that helps. Thank you very much. It's so much better than journaling, which, you know, you have to store your journals. <laughs> right? I don't know. Yeah, blogging has this, this sharp, it almost, like, some edges to it. It's yeah. going to be a bit... Well, and you edgy. can also, you know, yeah, it's an archive, too, right? Mm. It's an archive of your writing. So it's it's kind of always there. And I think it's good to write for the public, to get over your fear, right, of having other people read your writing. And uh, the writing just gets better and better. I think Zainab and others that are writing for the Daily now can attest to this, because... I I think writing in that kind of way really helps you practice. And the writing is really good in the daily lately, I just have to say. I don't know if there's anyone involved with that organization now, but thumbs up. Well, folks, what we'll do is we're going to sign off now for the broadcast, but stick around if you'd like to ask a couple of questions or or more. Um, If you don't mind, Maria, sticking around for a few more questions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Thank you so much, Maria Cotera. um, Thanks. For being our first guest. I don't know who's going to match this, Maria. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening um, to uh, Word Squared, Writer to Writer, um, on Living Writers on WCBN-FM. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.